there was this perfectly peaceful, unarmed man just standing there thrown to the ground by five cops and put in handcuffs and brutally hauled away. I mean, they're just totally shell-shocked and in astonishment. This is scary. Where America's getting to is a scary place. And on that note, Jerry, um, how about I let you do the honors of giving a quick biographical sketch of our guest today? Well, let me, let me just bring Stefan on and we'll get this started. Come on board, Stefan, and tell us, uh, tell the people that are out there in the listening audience a little bit about yourself, and, uh, and then we'll kick this thing off. How's that? That's great. Listen, um, first of all, thanks for having me on. Secondly, I'd just like to point out that the last things that you said before bringing me on were, we're about to go to a very scary place, and then you thought you would introduce me. I just wanted to point out the timing. <laughs> I just mentioned that I don't think I've ever had quite that oh, no. some kind of introduction before. And I, that's, like, I even half a mask on my face or something. Anyway, well, I, I'll tell I'll tell you what. Well, I'll do a better job on the other side of this break that we're fixing to go into, Stefan. I promise. Just everybody, hang loose. We'll be right. place of destruction. Let's bring on Steph. Yeah, we'll be right back. Hang loose. All right, comrades. Our guest today. In case you've are, in case you haven't already guessed it, is Stefan Molyneux. Now, Stefan, um, I'll tell you how we got to have him on the program today. I contacted Larkin Rose, who we've had on the program several times, and I asked Larkin who he thought was the absolutely the the best insofar as offering the apologetics of anarchy, hmm. and he suggested uh, Stefan. And, you know, I had heard Stefan's name a couple of times, and, and, and I saw I went out and looked online, and I found, um, what is it, freedomradio.com, Stefan, isn't it what it is? It's a freedomainradio.com, yeah. Freedomainradio.com, okay, excuse me. Anyway, I watched some of Stefan's presentations in their video format, and quite frankly, Stefan, I was hoping that today, in the impossibly short time we have together, that you would endeavor to give our listeners a similar education experience that you do so well in some of those videos. And by that, I mean, you've actually seemed to have formulated the unified field theory of anarchy. And that sort of makes you the apostle of anarchic <laughs> theory yeah, the that you do so wonderfully. The professional apologetics of anarchy. That's what Jerry promised me with you. I, uh, I like how you're setting the bar low for this conversation. <laughs> no, no pressure, but can you be? The hey, it's limbo. It's okay. limbo, Stefan. Not, not jumping over it. You got to go under it. Right. <laughs> right. That's good. Uh, like, so. Please, please just jump in. Uh, and I want you to think that uh, other than the commercial breaks and the a few questions that we're going to throw at you, and hopefully we'll get some from our listening audience, you have control. Right. I like the apologetics of anarchy. It's like, sorry about your Starbucks window, but I had had a lot of coffee that day. So, look, <laughs> uh, anarchy is a very simple thing, and it's so simple that it's, it's almost incomprehensible. Uh, and that sounds kind of weird, but the reality is I think every sane human being recognizes the validity of two things, sort of two moral bedrocks to any civilized society. And the first is the non-aggression principle, which is you don't get to go and start fights with people. You can end fights if somebody starts a fight with you, but you don't get to go and you know hit people and assault them and rape them and kill them and, and all that. So the non-aggression principle is something that we all learn about in kindergarten, and then we're taught that it 
is separate for other people in society for the rest of her life. So the non-aggression <laughs> principle is one foundation. And then the second is property rights. And property rights are really derived from self-ownership. I own myself. I own the effects of my actions, uh, whether they're good or bad, whether it's property or crimes or, or a painting or whatever it is. I own the effects of my actions. You put those two things together. You get non-aggression principle and property rights as universal principles it changes society in a very fundamental way. It changes society the way that, you know, there used to be this idea that the, the, the Earth was the center of the solar system and all the planets and the sun went around. And this was called the Ptolemaic system, and it arose in ancient Greece. And the weird thing was is that because, you know, we go around the sun and Mars goes around the sun, at some point we accelerate faster and Mars goes backwards and then forwards. And they had to invent all of these weirdly complicated mathematics and astronomical approaches to uh, explain this retrograde motion of Mars. And then, you know, the Ka Galileo and, and Kepler and Copernicus all came along and said, okay, wait a second here. What if we move the sun to the center of the solar system? And then click, you know, everything fell into place. The math all worked. It was so simple, but it was radical and it really scared people because they read in the Bible that God placed the earth at the center and it didn't move and so on. And so what I suggest is our society is really messed up. It's really complicated. You have like 100,000 new laws being passed. You have volume after volume of tax codes. Nobody has any idea how to obey the law because the law is so convoluted and complicated. You've got national debts being passed from generation to generation, which is obviously unjust. I mean, mm -hmm. ripping off the unborn is really horrible. But if you move the non-aggression principle and property rights, two sides of the same coin, to the center of how we organize society, it looks very different. It looks like a society without a government because a government, by definition, by definition, and this is by Barack Obama's definition. This isn't something I'm just making up. A government is a group of individuals with a monopoly on the right and the obligation to initiate the use of force in a geographical area. To pass taxes, taxes are the initiation of force. Uh, I have not stolen from anyone, yet people can come and steal from me. I'm just sitting in my uh, study, yet people can come and take my house if I don't give them money. And if I resist them, they'll shoot me down. So a government has a legal right to initiate force. According to the non-aggression principle and property rights, that is immoral. And the philosophy of immorality is really clear. Immorality leads to bad things. The initiation of force leads to bad things. This is why we have the war on drugs. We have overseas wars. We have national debts. We have the, the coming destruction of the currency through overprinting from the Federal Reserve. We have all of the messes that occur whenever you give people the right to violate universal moral rules at will. Mm -hmm. And so the government can do all of these terrible things. These terrible things benefit a small elite few. You guys were talking about the cause of the Wall Street bankers. They're just an effect of the more singular cause of a monopoly on counterfeiting that the government has. So when you give people this kind of power, you know, the ring, it always leads to the same place. And uh, corruption always grows out of power. So we have to start taking away this power from people, which always leads to bad things for the society as a whole. However, it might benefit people in the short run, like crime does pay in the short run to a few people. Mm -hmm. So when we put the non-aggression principle and property rights at the center of society, we end up with a lot of different things. We end up with, you know, parents not being able to spank their kids because that's the initiation of force. We end up with uh, there can't be uh, the initiation of force against peaceful activities like smoking drugs or using drugs or going to prostitutes or gambling or anything like that. You can't initiate the – you can't have taxation. You can't have a monopoly on money printing. You can't have any of these things. And so that really is the anarchic view of society. It is a universal 
moral rule called thou shalt not initiate the use of force, thou shalt not steal. When you put that at the center of society, everything clicks. Why society is going so badly wrong at the moment becomes very, very clear, chillingly clear. How it's going to get worse and worse until we learn this lesson also becomes abundantly clear, and the challenges of changing the orientation of society also become clear. I hope that makes some kind of sense as a brief introduction. Can, can, can I interject a question here? Oh, yeah, please. One of the arguments that is always forwarded by those who believe in the uh, uh, perfection of the state is, is the argument of who will provide for what are now termed public goods. And by that, of course, they mean roads, bridges, and the other things that are viewed in that same category as the positive products produced by government. How do you address that issue? Well, I don't, because the whole point is that you, you don't address those issues. I mean, in, in the 18th century, right, so, so some crazy people came along and said, you know, slavery is pretty bad. We should not have slavery. And you know what everyone said? How on earth are we going to pick the cotton if we don't have slaves? Who's going to pick the cotton? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who picks the cotton. What matters is that slavery is wrong. What matters is that the initiation of force is wrong. What matters is that throwing, like kidnapping people and locking them up, incarcerating them for having little bits of random vegetation in their pocket is immoral. It's wrong. <laughs> Sticking guns in your neighbor's faces to pay for your children's education is wrong if I do it. It's wrong if you do it. It's wrong if everybody does it. So it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how these things get provided within the absence of a state. What matters is that the initiation of force is wrong. Nobody can answer these questions. I mean, think of trying to answer this question in the 18th, in, in the 18th century about getting rid of slavery. You say, well, how would the cotton be picked? And I'd say, no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. You see, we're going to have these giant horseless carriages painted red with these big threshing machines up front, and they're going to go through these fields automated, and they're going to pick all the cotton and You'd say, are you nuts? That doesn't make any sense. Like, how would that even work? What's going to be produced in a free society, how these problems are going to be solved, nobody can predict ahead of time, and it doesn't matter. What matters is the moral argument that we cannot allow people the legal right and obligation to initiate the use of force because then we have a situation of fundamental immorality at the core of our society. And most people, and I, I count myself with that number, I think most people argue that immorality, while it may benefit people in the short run, will destroy them and society in the long run. And we're currently seeing that process unfolding in all too tragic a set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Stefan, one of the things that I, just blows my mind is that people have, um, it, they have intentionally decided to embrace our current reality as peace and security. Because mm -hmm. when I start talking about anarchy, and the fact that the Declaration of Independence established an environment of anarchy, and that was a beautiful thing. And, uh, you know, I'm a volunteerist and so on. They're like, well, anarchy in their mind equals violence. And I always respond to that. Excuse me. We live in an intensely violent society down to the extent that we have laws forcing our children to attend government indoctrination programs for a certain number of hours each day, or their parents have to, on some level, prove that they're being educated at home. I mean, this is very violent. And, um, you know, they kind of look at me quizzically uh, as if our society is actually peace and security. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, an overwhelming excess of force results in an overwhelming compliance of the victims. And so to say that there's no violence is like to say that if most slaves don't get beaten, 
slavery is not violent. No, 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 no. Slavery is violent. The fact that slaves, most, chose, uh, most slaves chose to obey the slave owner rather than get beaten does not make it any less violent. In fact, it only confirms how violent it is. We know for a simple fact that society is exceedingly violent because the moment that you say to people, uh, parents should be responsible for their children's education and violence should not be used in the provision of that, everybody's shocked and appalled and they imagine that society would change enormously enormously in ways that are incomprehensible, which is probably true. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're already admitting that the system is violent inherently because the moment you talk about removing that violence, they, they find it incomprehensible. It's like, you, you know, it's like you, you're a fish living in the deep water and you say to some other kind of fish, you know, we're swimming in water and they say, water? What water? Because they don't know anything different. It's all they know, right? I mean, so mm -hmm. the fact that we live in a society where every solution is based upon passing a law, initiating force, threatening people, throwing them in jail, this is all that people can think of as like, oh, we've got problems with the environment. Well, we have to pass laws. We have to threaten people. This is all people can think of. And yet then they say that the system is not violent. But that's fantastic. Then we say, okay, well, if the system is not violent, let's get rid of the tax laws. Let's get rid of uh, property uh, taxes. Let's get rid of regulation because we don't need this ridiculous overhead. If the system isn't violent, let's, let's stop threatening people because it's an empty threat if there's no violence. But then they get that if we get rid of all these things, society will be fundamentally different. So, yeah, they know it's violence. They just don't like to see it because that's going to compel them to make some changes and, and to become more activist. And, you know, people kind of get comfortable in the matrix, right? Well, in this fundamentally different society, Stefan, how will we resolve conflicts such as breach of contract or other wrongful acts, both commercial, maybe such as fraud and interpersonal, such as assault and battery against someone without the wherewithal to defend themselves or defend their property, or maybe even something along the lines of dealing with someone who, by polluting their own property, impacts the well-being of others. How, how, would we, how would we address those situations? And, and, and now, what's my time before the commercial? Just so I can pace myself here. There's a you big, got about five question. minutes. You got about five right. minutes. Okay, let's, let's take the first one. Look, we have an example of that the, the world's largest employer operates almost completely in anarchy. Can you guess, guess what it is? The world's largest? The world's largest employer. Isn't that Walmart? No. The world's largest employer is uh, one of the world's, sorry, it's one of the, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago, it may still be, it's one of the world's largest employers is eBay. And eBay operates in a lawless, stateless environment. Because you, you can't, I mean, it's all over the world and, and half the people are anonymous. And so, uh, but it, it, it organizes itself according to reputation, right? So if, if you ship me 500 bucks and I'm supposed to ship you an iPad, and I don't ship you the iPad, then you come on and you mark me down in terms of reputation. I get enough of those and my business is done. There's no need for a government, no need for law courts, no need for suing, no need for breach of contract. You just – you publicly rate people in terms of their reputation with you know the proper safeguards so that your competitors don't come and do it and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? But the reality is that we have a perfectly functional example. Here's another one. The marriage market, right? The government does not tell you who to get married. To. Uh, the government doesn't tell you how long to stay married, who to get divorced. People just go out and find each other. There are lots of websites and bars and friends and all of that, churches where people will go to find potential partners. Uh, there's no force involved. And now, of course, the funny thing is, if you were to say to people, the like, well, marriage is half of the men in divorce and half the remaining half are miserable, so the government needs to step in and tell you who to get married to. People would be like, oh my goodness, that's appalling. That's terrible. Yeah, we can't do and what if we said the government needs to tell you what kind of job you're going to have? Well, that would be a, you know, so people love the 
anarchy of the job market. They love the anarchy of the dating and the wedding market. They love the anarchy of the education market. They love the anarchy of where they can live or where they want to live. And so all of these things that people love, you say, well, let's extend it to charity. Oh, no, that would be terrible. That would be disaster. You've got Mel Gibson with a flaming helmet riding around shooting everyone with machetes and sharks with lasers. And people just imagine that if you take what they love in terms of freedom and extend it like one step forward, it turns completely satanic and evil. And that's, of course, just propaganda. But uh, we all love anarchy in our day-to-day life. We just fear its extension into realms that we're not familiar with it. So it's really a fear of chaos, or or, or maybe in some instances, equally strong fears of individual responsibility. I think there is that aspect. And and you'd also said, uh, you know, it's not your fault. This is just propaganda. But you kind of slipped something in, right? So you say, well, how would anarchy solve the problem of violence, right? But Embedded in that is the implicit idea that somehow our existing system has solved the problem of violence. Like, how would anarchy do such a great job of solving the problem? No, of no, 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 no. Not solve it, Stefan. Not solve it. Deal with it. Deal with it as it comes up in interpersonal relationships. Right. So the question is, like, so okay, how would anarchy deal with the problem of, of theft? Well, the first thing that anarchy would do would be to have a system where half your income wasn't stolen at gunpoint by the government, right? So, so automatically yeah, right we're 50%… Start, we're doing a good job at dealing yeah, with you know, that. We're, we're 50% up just by not having a government. Now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as far as theft goes, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, the economic growth under a free system would be enormous, so there'd be much less incentive to steal. Um, you could obviously buy insurance against getting stuff stolen so that if you got your TV stolen, someone would just pay you the value of the TV and maybe try and go and recover it. You could also change it so that everything you had was voice activated or eyeball activated so that stealing it would do no good. I mean, I don't know what the future is going to look like. I sure know that if we get a 50% reduction in, in institutional theft through statism, we're way ahead of the game. And if there's maybe 1% or 2% theft left, we're still 48 49%. <laughs> up from where we are. So uh, so I think that's just a, a massive uh, improvement. Now, as far as pollution goes, you just you buy pollution insurance, right? So uh, I say, I go to some company and say, listen, you got to guarantee my air is clear. And that company then has to go around and, and make sure that nobody's polluting my air or they've got to pay me all this money and they'll find ways to do that. I mean, there's insurance and, and um, uh, prevention rather than cure because, I mean, the government isn't interested in having you not be stolen from because they don't make any money from that. They're interested in, you know, filling out forms and never looking for your stuff because that's the easiest way for them to justify their existence. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is voluntary webs of, of entrepreneurial problem solving is the way things get done in society. The most anarchic area of the economy is the computer hardware and software, particularly software. You know, I mean, I was an entrepreneur for many years, uh, co-founded a software company, grew it and sold it and sold it again. And I'm really intimately aware with you don't need a, a degree to become a software programmer. In fact, some of the best programmers I had had arts degrees, myself included. And so the, you know, the area where there's the most innovation and the most growth are those areas where you don't have to have a PhD in computer science, where the barriers to entry are very low uh, and you can just be as innovative as you want. I mean, would we say to Bill Gates or, or Steve Jobs, sorry, you can't do it because you don't have the right license? Of course not. I hear That's you. I hear you. Right. Stephen, we got to cut away to a break here, but uh, man, I'm having a good time. We're talking today with the Apostle of Anarchy, Stephen Molyneux. He'll be back with us in just a moment. We hope you are too. Hang loose. Welcome back to Freedom Frenzy. Today we have, as we have knighted him, the Apostle of Anarchy, Stefan. And Stefan, I 
got a question for you because my children do not get to enjoy self-ownership. I let them know that they live in a benevolent dictatorship. They're going to do what I tell them because I am caring for them and paying their bills. And when I kick them out, they will then experience the beauty of self-ownership. And the faster they come into that reality, the more I will like them. In fact, my favorite child is the one who grows up and doesn't need me. Uh, what do you say to that? So I, I sort of get this image of, of your parenting being sort of like an airplane and they better pack some parachutes <laughs> because sooner or later right. they're just going to go out. I right. am you out. <laughs> yeah, there's a big door that's always open. Don't make me throw this parachute after you. You might not catch it before you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, I, I'm not sure that I would go with you as far as do what I say. And I'm sure that that's not exactly what you mean. I'm sure you sort of explain why there are things oh, a certain yeah. way, right? So, I mean, I try to, as a parent, try to reason as much as possible because I certainly don't want my daughter doing things because I say. I want my wife. No, I'm kidding. But I, I don't <laughs> ask my daughter to do things because I say them. I want her to do things because she understands them, right? So today, I mean, just a reminder example, we – we were out for lunch, and my daughter was running up and down the restaurant because she's two and a half, and sitting down is like you and I being poured into a concrete tomb. It's just it's unbearable to her. It's like the cask of Amontillado. She must flee. And, <laughs> and the, of course, waitress is going up and down with hot coffee and soup. And also I had to sort of say to her, listen, you can't run up and down because, you know, see all those people with that. We're going to fall, birdies, owies, you know, doctors, and, you know, all the things that, that you know, she doesn't want to do. And so she, she got it. And, and so she now sort of understands it. But otherwise, you end up in a dominant situation where she has to obey me because I'm saying it. And then you end up with an escalation system. And then it, she's always going to try and get away with whatever she can get away with because she doesn't really understand why and so you know like I think like all reasonable educators and parenting is the ultimate act of education I want to teach her how to think not what to think which means giving her reasons for stuff and I think that's great but she of course I think yearns for independence I mean she wants to do things by herself and you know she she doesn't like it when I help her a lot of times uh, so uh, so I think children yearn like plants grow to the sunshine children grow towards knowledge and independence and the pursuit of of skill acquisition and expertise and she I mean I would, if I was in her position and people were just feeding me and clothing me I just lie around like Jabba the Hutt and sipping pina coladas all day but <laughs> but she is like you know she's a hot potato propulsion tamale rocket as far as a, a skill acquisition goes and she's currently trying she's two and a half she's trying to do cartwheels and it's kind of heartbreaking because she can just sort of sag and fall over but she still really really wants to do it so she's very excited by all of that acquisition and growth so I think they grow towards independence you just have to try yeah, to avoid yeah. to the, the, the command and control thing and give them the sort of reasons and I found that to be the most successful way too because I mean there's no discipline really in our house I think I've maybe put her in a crib once or twice in two and a half years. She's never had a timeout. I don't need to punish her. I, I've never raised my voice, never hit her, never do any. I mean, this is not necessary because she's, she has full human rights. I mean, why wouldn't she? I mean, she didn't choose me as a dad. She didn't choose this uh, environment as her family. So I have to be... I have to have higher moral standards with my daughter than anyone else. My wife, you know, if I turn into a, a jerk and a half, she can just pick up and leave any time. My daughter doesn't have that choice. So I have to, you know, it's an arranged marriage and I have to get her to love me by, by being super, super nice, so to speak. And so <laughs> there's no higher standard for me I, I than there is with my daughter. to reincarnate to your household, Devin. Well, but like you were saying, with humans, you know, they're born, they come into the world, they crave and want freedom. And unfortunately, in our current government environment and the amount of government intrusion in our lives, the idea of being without the government is terrifying, even to people who profess a desire for freedom and liberty. 
And, you know, I think we have really come into a dangerous place where now as adults, we are reduced once more to children having to get permission from the government to do every single act that we do in day to day life requires on some level the permission of the government. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this uh, when we come back. This is Freedom Frenzy. we got to cut away to a break. We've got Stephen Stefan, the anarchist, with us today. You guys stay tuned. That is Mike taking over. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hi. You know, um, Stefan, in our household, when we started reproducing, which John and I got married as children and, and decided to reproduce as children. Um, we actually went about child training in a systematic progression of um, commands <laughs> where we never used yes or no, but we would instruct, um, you know, starting on the diaper changing table at six months, you know, when they're obviously trying to wriggle around and they can hurt themselves. And so you, you train on be still and so on and so forth. And certainly there is the presuppositional apologetics approach to parenting where you are training them to teach and, and, and to think on their own. And, and I'm not really a micromanager on that level. But then there are certain things that they don't have an option on, you know, which they have to do. Um, yeah, they got to go to the dentist or whatever, right? I mean, there's just stuff right. they have to do. They Haircuts have to practice their instruments every day. You know, they have to study their Latin. They have to memorize their poetry. <laughs> there's no option to this stuff. Um, but with the intent of making them a productive human being to kick them out at 18. So yeah, I mean, what, what do you think would happen if uh, they had the choice about what is they could be able to pursue? You know, the unschooling thing. And I, I don't know much about it. I've just, I mean, uh, I've read about it a little bit. There's the idea that, that they will pursue their own knowledge purpose in the absence of a structure. I don't know if it's true or not, but whether you've tried it or heard about it. But We're what do you think back. would happen if you... Yeah, I think we had to jump back in yeah, here, folks. Go. All right, all right. We're back, and I'm sorry about that, dear. I didn't know you were going to do that, but you know our timing was impeccable, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, Great mind, like Jerry. Stefan is the the sort of apostle that just loves the opportunity to deal with devil's advocates. We t- we're told, mm-hmm. and so if you've got a question or a a, a thing that you want to. Um, uh, put in front of Stefan to see what his response might be. Give us a call at 1-800-313-9443. Now, Stefan, recognizing that the ideology of anarchy would probably most likely start as a nearly tribal phenomenon, one would exp- and one that maybe would expand to that of regional as it progressed in acceptance, how or what should the people do insofar as organizing to defend their own lives, liberty, and property from not only the control freak crowd locally, but from those outside of the region that would view such a situation as an invitation to move in and take over? Right. Yeah. Look, I mean, one of the things that I hate about statism is that other people's mistakes become my tragedies. And so yeah. when people make – people do stupid things like um, Keynesianism, quantitative easing and money printing and, and crap like that or start wars or go and provoke hornet's nests in the Middle East, that that becomes a problem for you and me. Uh, you know, if my neighbor decides to blow all his money on ho- hookers and cocaine, you know, okay, I'm sorry, but that doesn't mean I lose my house. But when people make mistakes in a status society, like we have to be involved with idiots who are wrong because they're, they're, the effects of their decisions are so catastrophic for us. Um, but 
to me, the way that we achieve freedom is, um, I mean, there's, there's two components to it. I'll start with the one that's more obvious, which is once people accept the moral argument that using violence to solve social problems is a bad idea, uh, then things just end. Like once people understood that slavery was immoral, slavery just ended, and it ended pretty quickly. And everywhere in the world except the United States, it ended peacefully. Like in Brazil, they just stopped catching the slaves and it just collapsed. I mean, this, this slavery was entirely a statist phenomenon because the government would go and catch the slaves and bring them back, socializing the cost of keeping the slaves. And so right. once people got that it was immoral, then it, it ends. And once people get that statism is immoral and destructive and predatory and, and evil and, and so on, then we, you know, we take the ring of power, we throw it in Mount Doom. And, we, just, and, and we, we are almost doing it because the people who are using this power are themselves becoming destroyed by it. It is bad for the masters to have this kind of power. It corrupts everybody in society for this kind of power to exist and so we gently take the sword out of the hands of the master and the whip out of the hands of the master because it's bad for them even if they don't know it themselves it's the intervention it's the violent statist intervention that we need to have as a society once people get that it's wrong that it's immoral then it just it doesn't matter what the consequences are like once we get that when jefferson wrote all men are created equal and women then we get that the next thing he said, and therefore we need a government, was a direct contradiction to that, right? I mean, if all men are created equal, you can't give some men a monopoly of force. I mean, you can't. In the right. same way that if all men are equal, you can't have some men own other men in the form of slavery. So right. once people understand the moral argument, then, I mean, morality is the most powerful force. It is the gravitational strong force in, in the mental universe. Once you, you, a moral argument is irresistible once it is accepted. And so we just have to keep pounding that same drum that it's, it's immoral, it's immoral, and it doesn't, matter what the, it doesn't matter what the consequences of doing the right thing are. You just have to do the right thing. And so that's aspect. And the second thing, of course, is I think that we need to raise uh, kids to not be afraid of authority. We need to raise kids uh, without... Uh, aggression, without violence, without bullying, without uh, abuse of verbal, emotional, physical, sexual, and all that kind of stuff, because that primes them to be owned by statists uh, and political masters in the future. Uh, and so if we raise children with respect, they'll demand that from their society. Yeah, okay. I think this is a point. Well, we've got to cut away to another break. I hope you guys out there in Radioland are having as good a time as Jenny and I apparently are. Okay, hopefully you grabbed a nice hot cup of coffee or maybe a cold glass of tea and you're sitting close to your telephone. Give us a buzz, 1-800-313-9443. Stefan, I, I want to put a sharp point on the question that I asked you that you started to answer before the break. And I kind of wanted to get you to focus in on a particular aspect of that question. Let's say that the entire country of America, United States of America, adopts and embraces anarchy. Now, let's say that the um, Canada or no, no, no. I know you live in Canada. Let's say Mexico um, decide, or has a, a person that's very, very similar in outlook to uh, Attila the Hun. And he sees anarchy reigning in America and he decides to, that they're weak, they're disorganized, and we can finally move in and take all their stuff. Because they are, they're, they're a bunch of anarchists. There is no organization. There is no, there wouldn't be any concerted defense. How do you address that issue? 
well, why wouldn't there be any concerted defense? So let's say that you and I live in America, the truly free, uh, and uh, we look to the south and we see a bunch of hopped up drug lords who want to come over and uh, reinstate a government to us or whatever. I mean, the first thing we do is we'd say, holy crap, we need some defense, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not good, right? So we would uh, we would contract with uh, an organization to provide some sort of defense. And there's a bunch of different ways. Look, I'm no military expert, so this is entirely speaking out of my armpit. But this is sort of the way I would approach it <laughs> if I were trying to sell this, right? Is I'd say, look, okay, so nuclear powers don't get invaded, right? I mean, they don't. They may fight proxy wars like Argentina or, or North uh, the Korea or Vietnam, but they don't get invaded. So... You know, half a dozen nukes and we're fine because it just doesn't doesn't happen. Right. And so that's one way I have a hard time with it because I don't think even a nuclear force would would do would do in their own country with nuclear power, with nuclear force to uh, to stave off an invasion. I don't No, No, but you would launch them into Mexico, not into. Right. Well, I mean, look, maybe. look, uh, Russia and America throughout what, 45 or 50 years of the Cold War nukes prevented them from having a direct war with each other. And no nuclear, with, with the minor exception of, and it's not unimportant, but we can talk about that another time perhaps, with the minor exception of Israel, there's no nuclear power that has ever been invaded. So this is just one possible way of, of dealing with the issue. The second is that if you are looking to take over a bunch of land, and on sort of on your left is a farm, and on your right is just the woods, you're much more likely to go and take over the farm. Why? Because the cows have already been domesticated. Uh, you, the, the, the crops have already been planted. You can get you know, milk and you can get meat and it's all fully functioning. Whereas in the wild, you've got to go and hack out all this stuff yourself, right? And so when you are an aggressive country, you don't want to invade an anarchic country because there's no tax system for you to take over. Right. So, I mean, when when the the Germans rolled into France uh, in 1940, the first thing they did was they took over the tax structure and got all the money that was coming out of the French citizens. There's no tax structure in an anarchic society. There's not a farm to take over with domesticated cattle that you can immediately start milking and slaughtering. And so it's really hard to invade an anarchic country. Uh, yeah. And no matter how overwhelming your military forces, I'll give you a, a it's it's a controversial example, and I apologize for its controversy, but it is quite obvious that if you look at the defenses that are going on in Afghanistan and Iraq at the moment, these are non-statist uh, military maneuvers on the part of the insurgents and the government, uh, with all the resources, the military might of America the, the spends more than all the other countries combined, still cannot quell and subdue that country. Yep. And the entire purpose of it, of course, is to bleed the uh, American economy dry to the point where it collapses. So mm -hmm. it really is not sustainable to invade a country without a state. That, uh, that's a very good answer, Stefan. It isn't sustainable to invade a country without a state. And I love the example of Afghanistan and Iraq. And of course, in my mind was coming, it, you know, the England's um, efforts to subdue the Scots and just how frustrating and irritating it was because they were just such an independent spirit. But also uh, the topography was inhibitive of, you know. Oh, look, all the empires of the world have all collapsed because they are detrimental to the states that, uh, that I mean, the, the Roman Empire collapsed for these very same reasons. The British Empire, Spanish Empire, Portuguese, the Greek, I mean, they all collapsed because it's simply not sustainable uh, to, to do that. So, uh, you know, it, it is definitely an issue. Uh, I've got a free book on my website called Practical Anarchy that attempts to answer this in, in sort of more detail uh, with some more historical examples. But it's really hard to invade an anarchic country. I mean, you just, there's nothing to, to take over and start harvesting right away. And you have a population that has 
you don't know what weapons they've got because, of course, when you invade a country, for the most part, you're invading a legally disarmed citizenry. That's pretty tough. That's an easy thing to do. But in, in anarchy, you don't know who's got what. Mm. And so it's really hard to to go in and, and know what you're going to face. And of course, there's also an unwritten rule among state leaders that you don't go for each other, right? Like you don't take out assassination attempts on the political leaders because they're all vulnerable to that. So it's kind of an unwritten law that you don't do it. That wouldn't be the case in an anarchic society. You just go for an assassination. Uh, and, uh, you know, imagine the technology that would be available to a truly free society with all of the entrepreneurial energies unleashed. I mean, they'd have sky lasers that, that take anybody in a moment's notice. I mean, you'd have to spend your entire life underground if you wanted a polit- political leader to invade a, a anarchic society. There'd be such technology for defense that I think it would be, I mean, I, I, it would be one of the least things I would worry about, though I understand why the question's important. Okay, well, I, you posed a lot of things that I'm going to have to ruminate about, particularly the, uh, uh, the likelihood that an anarchic state would, would present such an obstacle to an invader. That's, uh, yeah, that's you kind, kind of, of lost me on the nuclear bit because I just don't see the nuke thing happening. But you regained me big time with the bit about, you know, just the practicality of trying to invade a massive anarchist society. And besides that, um, people who are truly free have a tendency to like it. And so they are going to be some feisty, aggressive people when it comes to kicking butts. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're not going to follow any sort of um, sweet and fluffy aristocratic rules of engagement. It's going to be guerrilla warfare and it's going to be dirty. And it's going to be preemptive against the political leadership that is authorizing it. And I agree with you. The nuke thing is not a great example because, of course, there's the injustice of lobbing nukes into a country that may invade you, thus killing a lot of innocent people. So I agree with you. It's not. A, I simply wanted to point out that defense against invasion can be astonishingly cheap if we accept the historical reality that nuclear powers don't get invaded. And a couple of nukes are very, very cheap, right? So let's say they cost $300 million a year to maintain these nuclear weapons or whatever it is, some, some de- deterrent weapons. That's a dollar a year for every everyone in America. Uh, I think that's doable to avoid the threat of invasion. I, I just think it could be really cheap and efficient to to have these kinds of deterrents in place. Yeah, but then you'd have to figure out a structure for picking the person who decided when or when not to push the button. Right. Agreed. And these, these, so yeah, I agree that the nukes is not the best answer, but it is a way of showing that you can have a cheap solution uh, as most of the countries. I mean, why has Europe stopped having wars for the first time in 2000 years? Because they all have nuclear weapons. I mean, it's not because they suddenly discovered, I mean, if they had discovered that war was bad, they would have done that after the first world war. They did it after the second world war because everybody had nukes. And suddenly it's like, hey, look, let's have peace because now the political leaders can get killed. So suddenly they find a way to live in peace. Okay. Hey, we have a caller in the queue that I have not heard from in a long time, and it makes me grin big to see him. Rodney in Illinois. Hey, welcome to Freedom Frenzy. Hello, Freedom Frenzy crew. Hey there. You found us. <clears throat> I have. I don't have a cup of coffee or tea, but will a, a Hornsby's Amber, Amber Draft do? That well, sounds well, wonderful. If you share. If you share. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, come on over. I've got plenty. <laughs> well, I thought I would play the part of the devil's advocate, but before I do, Mr. Uh, Stephen, I can't pronounce your name unless I hear it a few more times, but um, some years ago, somebody had sent me a link to, an, to a, um, I think it was a YouTube, and it was nothing but a scrolling text, and I think there was a voiceover, and I think it was your voice, 
And I lost track of that, and I looked and looked and looked and looked and could not ever find it again until I, um, I think I came across your video, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're one and the same fella, and I so admire your work. Uh, you're certainly a kindred spirit, so it's, it's really hard to play the part of a uh, devil's advocate here, but... Uh, well, I appreciate that, but uh, no, it's a, it's a very, very useful. You know, I mean, uh, you, it's very, very important and useful to bring up the most challenging arguments against a free society. It's when you're talking about the structure of society, you really don't want to get it wrong because when you get it wrong, you get the difference between the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which, whatever its flaws, was a step forward in for for many people. So, look, the devil's advocate position is honorable, it's noble, it's essential. The, the last thing I ever want to do is to advocate something that could end up like communism, like a. 70 million people die in just one country. Uh, so, no, it's very, very essential that we, we are as critical of these ideas as possible. So I respect that, that role enormously, and I appreciate you taking it on. Okay. Well, I, I thought about creating my own um, scenario, but uh, let, me, let me start with two um, historical uh, ob- objects, objectives here. One is Tahiti, and the other is slavery in England – uh, took about a hundred years, and the entire life and all of the passion and energy of one named Wilberforce uh, to bring that to an end. So it didn't necessarily die of a, of a, a natural death in England. It did die, of course. But but what about Tahiti? I, I, would you agree that Tahiti, before uh, Europeans set foot on their uh, you know island, did not they enjoy anarchy? I wouldn't say so, no. And I, I think it's a great point that you're bringing up, right? So I say uh, that, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't need to worry about uh, being invaded by a, a state. But if you look at sort of the absence of a Western formal status structure, like a government structure, and say, well, there's Tahiti, there's there's um, uh, the West Indies, there's, uh, I mean, heaven's sakes, I mean, there's, there's Africa, you know, where the European colonial powers came and uh, took slaves and so on. So, uh, so I, is that sort of where you're coming from? And I think that's a great, great uh, objection to bring up. Well, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm of uh, a, I'm a Bible believer. I believe that that, that Christ epitomizes the, uh, the will of the Father. And Rodney, uh, I, I hate it, but I got to jump in here. We hear the music. We're going to have to cut away to a break. Okay, I need to jump right back in here. And Rodney, you were in the middle of the thought before we had to jump away to that break. And um, if you would kind of pick it up from the top again, and so Stefan can gets gets to hear it in its entirety. Well, of course, I'm an anarchist by by nature, and of course, you know, I, I haven't prepped for this show, but the 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 thought of the island nation of Tahiti came to my mind as a prime example of a naturally occurring form of anarchy and I'm 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 still somewhat convinced that that may actually serve as a good example but Stephen disagrees with me yeah, let me just uh, I respond before I forget the Tahiti thing because I'm I, I tangent myself sometimes into a whirlwind of distraction so I want to make sure I stay focused on that so I don't have to up my riddle and drip but um, uh, I will say that I do not view primitive societies as operating in a state of anarchy uh, and the reason that I say that is because anarchy uh, true anarchy philosophical anarchy is uh, is the future 
of the species. It, it is it is not the past. So, for instance, um, uh, in, in tribal societies, you have a very strong hierarchy. Uh, you know, the elders, and there's a tribal chieftain whose word is law. Uh, they tend to be extremely brutal with their children. You can go to psychohistory.com for more information about this. The noble savage thing, everyone living in peace is pretty much uh, a myth. And so the, there's a very strong hierarchy. Uh, there is not a sense of equality. Property rights and the non-aggression principle are not respected. These tribes were at war with each other fairly consistently. Uh, they they did not have philosophical equality. They had not even developed philosophy, uh, let alone science, let alone the free market or or private property in any kind of re reasonable way. And so uh, that to me is a very sort of primitive uh, uh, society. And you could, you, the more advanced and consistent societies tend to develop technologically very quickly because people like to innovate, they like to trade, they like to grow. So societies which are stuck in primitivism tend to be anti-philosophical, anti-equality, anti-free market, anti-property rights. This was certainly the case with the primitive societies that, that you've mentioned and certainly the ones that I've studied, though I'm no expert on this, this area. So I would not view those as anarchic because, simply because they lacked what we would call a state. They still had a very strict, powerful, and political hierarchy that was based upon the dominance of the warrior class and the dominance of the superstitious or priestly classes. It was not a rational society society of equality and philosophy, uh, Socrates would not have been welcomed there. In fact, he probably would have, you know, been okay. thrown to the sharks. Or so I don't view that as a, yeah, I don't <laughs> view that as a state. And, and I, in fact, I would say that the advancements in the European civilizations occurred because they had outgrown the tribal model, had gone to the nation state, which at least gave some more room for human innovation than a very claustrophobic and locally controlled tribal model. So, you know the the anarchism to me is like science. It's like uh, it's 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 in the future. It's in philosophical knowledge in the future. It does not. It is not represented by a highly hierarchical, uh, primitive, superstitious, uh, and and aggressive uh, primitive society. If that makes sense. Yeah. Hey, uh, I've I've kind of gathered my thoughts here. I think I can finish my comments and and get off. But first, Jenny, I hope I hope you don't let this pass. I mean, it, Stephen's coming very close to. Uh, Insulting your your idealistic uh, um, affinity towards the American Indian culture. So, but let me let me finish my thought. You mentioned something, Stephen, that I wonder how many people caught, and that was anarchy is the future. Isn't that what they have said about communism all these uh, hundred years? Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, just because uh, somebody has said something incorrect doesn't mean everyone who says it is is incorrect. Okay. Um, well, let me, uh, please, uh, let me to, finish my thought. Please. Here, this is what I think is the Achilles heel, and and I I'm I, I think anarchy is an individual uh, accomplishment. I don't know that you can organize anarchy, but anyhow, it it comes down to this crux, and that is the inherent predisposition of the heart of men. Is it toward, is it benevolent? Is it do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Or is it seize upon the opportunity, take the advantage for my own benefit and advancement at the expense of my neighbor? Right. Is that in the form I, of a question? 
Yeah, no, I, I it, it, this is the, yeah. look, you've you've come to a very very powerful point, and I really want to just I, I won't spend too much time, but I really want to first of all compliment you for great questions, great thinking, and this is a very very essential point, which is the question of human nature, because what I'm not saying you're doing this, but what a lot of people do is we say, okay, well human beings should cooperate and they should be peaceful and all that, and then people will come along and say, but it is human nature to be selfish and greedy and, and win-lose and, and take and dominate and subjugate and blah, blah, blah. But the reality, and, and I, I, this is not coming out of, of my opinion hole. This is coming out of my science hole, which you probably don't want to see on the webcam. But uh, the, the reality is that there's no such thing as human nature. Human nature adapts to circumstances. That adaptation scientifically begins in the womb. Parents who are stressed, mothers who are stressed, generally produce more aggressive children because the children are adapting to the coming environment even before they are born. Uh, children who are aggressed against, they lose IQ points, they gain uh, the 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 um, the amygdala, the fight or flight mechanism within the brain gets bigger. The the uh, the neofrontal cortex, the the seat of reasoning and restraint and the deferral of gratification shrinks. So you end up very impulse driven, very violent, very aggressive, less intelligent. So if you raise children in a situation of violence, you get one particular type of human being. If you raise children in a situation of peace and cooperation and plenty, you get a different type of human being. What is necessary for a free society is first and foremost to breed human beings who are capable of looking at freedom without anxiety, who are capable of negotiating and feeling the security of win-win negotiations. They learn that in the family, then they will be able to reproduce that within society. It's not going to come from politics down. It's going to come from the family up. Wow. Um, that was a really, really quick segment. Guys, we're going to cut away to a break here. We've got still almost a half an hour left to go. If you want to weigh in, 1-800-313-9443. Go grab something warm to drink. We'll be right back. Okay, if you've just tuned in for whatever reason, your team lost and you're very upset, you need something to maybe turn the sports off and turn the intellect on, today on Freedom Frenzy, we've got Stefan Molyneux, and I've introduced Stefan as the, uh, what are the, the apostle. Apostle. Uh, the Apostle of Anarchy. And and the other thing that I think Stefan has really done, and if you've been listening for here for the last hour or so, I think it should have dawned on you that Jerry was spot on when Jerry said that this individual that we have the good fortune of having on with us today has actually constructed the unified field theory of anarchy because he has addressed all of these questions that have been raised in a wonderful fashion. But now I'm going to, I'm going to wind up and I'm going to warn you in advance, Stefan, here's, this is a curveball that I'm, I'm fixing to throw you. Okay. And I'm a lefty too. Jenny, Jenny grins big. I love it when Jerry throws curveballs. I want you to address for me and for the audience just exactly what the shortcomings or the problems with anarchy as you view them might be, because I think that's something else that we need to take into consideration. Yeah. Well, let me just give you the mental image that worked just before I answer that, right? So you call me the apostle of anarchy. So immediately I'm starting to think like I'm in a sort of Jawa uh, robe, you know, with commando. Hat, with a funny right? hat. No, uh, no underwear, right? <laughs> and then you're throwing, yeah, so then you're throwing a curveball at me. And I think about going down into a catcher's position, and I think, oh, my goodness, that would be a, just a terrible visual for everyone. But I thought I'd share it with you anyway. Okay, so problems with, with anarchy. Well, 
it's it's taking too long to get here. <laughs> I would say that that would sort of be one of the major issues. Well, look, the problems with anarchy uh, is that um, uh, they're, they're, look, anarchy is not a perfect system. There's no question that there are you know even if we can raise children to the point where they just don't think of uh, violence, there's still going to be people who get brain injuries and brain tumors that affect their personality. They go nutty and they'll you know shoot people or whatever there there will still be uh, uh, people who will be very hard or impossible to help people with, with mental illnesses or or there may be not enough charity for certain areas so there are going to be problems within an anarchic society you know anarchy isn't a magic wand where you wave it and everything becomes perfect any more than science uh, the, the, the discipline of the scientific method produces perfect knowledge all the time. There are mistakes, there are corruptions, there are problems. So I don't want anyone to think that this is a, a magic solution uh, to, to problems because freedom is, is, is unpredictable. Now, the good thing, of course, about freedom is that problems tend to be self-limiting, right? So if you get a bad government law – it stays, it stays, it stays. It's like a Mormon who comes into your house, you know, <laughs> getting these people out can be can be a challenge, right? I mean, they're like Jehovah's Witnesses clamped onto your leg. It's not easy to get rid of a bad government program, but something that doesn't work in a free society, like let's say I come up with some, uh, I call them DROs or dispute resolution organizations that I say, I'm going to promise to resolve all your disputes. And uh, uh, I do that by kidnapping people's pets. Well, you know, people are going to say, well, that's a stupid thing to do. I don't want to deal with you anymore. So people who provide bad services, it tends to be self-limiting. Uh, in the same way that if you, you know, you ask for pizza and you get some piece of cardboard with three tomatoes on it, you could be like, well, I'm not going to order from that guy again. Mm. So there will be problems within an anarchic system, but I think they tend to be self-healing, self um solving so to speak but again i really really want to point out you know that i get sometimes i get called a, a utopian or you know i got my uh, head up my uh, ass of nirvana kind of thing but that's not the way it is uh, freedom can be a mess it can be uh, imperfect you know but but the difference is right is that statism is a black hole where the, the problems are permanent and and get worse and worse all the time I look at the problems in a free society like sunspots on the face of the sun. Yeah, okay, it'd be nice if they weren't there, but it's not like it can't light your way anyway. Would you, would you say that anarchy lends itself to uh, a, a Darwinian outlook? Do you mean sort of survival of the uh, of the fittest? Exactly. No, I don't. And uh, the reason for that is that economically speaking, a free society, a free market society, is, uh, you could call me sort of a market anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist, a free market society by definition is a win-win society. So this comes straight from the praxeological Austrian school of economics uh, to put a few extra syllables in my cheeks, mm -hmm. uh, which is that any economic interaction that is voluntary is win-win. Right, So if I have five bucks and you have a pen and we voluntarily exchange those things, clearly I want the pen more than I want the five bucks and clearly you want the five bucks more than you want the pen. We're both better off for that interaction. And so when you don't have the government forcing people to buy and sell, forcing people out of certain occupations, hurting people into other economic arrangements like – too many uh, people buying houses for their creditworthiness, which results in an economic, say, explosion. When you don't have the government forcing people to do stuff, you get win-win negotiations. Now, it doesn't mean everybody never has buyer's remorse or anything like that, but in the moment of the transaction, it is win-win by definition because nobody's being forced to do anything. And so it is automatically a happier and uh, more cooperative society without this central 
saber-toothed tiger primitive state. I mean, the state is like 6,000 years old. What other piece of 6,000-year-old technology are you working with? Though I always say to statists, if you, if you want to use the state to solve problems, you don't get modern dentistry. You don't get computers. You get an abacus. You get, you know, <laughs> you, you get um, faith healing. You get, uh, if you want uh, rain for your crops, you don't get to water them. You got to do a rain dance. Mm-hmm. Everything that was around in ancient Egypt, you can use because that's your level yeah, of technology. It's definitely it's retrograde. incredibly primitive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely retrograde. Um, well, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, I, I thought maybe that's where you were going in one of the comments that you made as far as there not being enough charity to go around. And, and that's why I asked you that question. I don't know. I think that people, especially Americans, they seem to be incredibly nonviolent as evidenced by the amount of violence they're willing to quietly mosey along and take. Um, but I would see the problem with anarchy would be um, perhaps a growing ambivalence for violence against individuals and, and erosion of individual life, liberty and property that doesn't affect you as an individual. So you just kind of, well, that's not my problem, sort of. Well, like what? What, what sort of example? Um, okay, let's say... Your- can I can I give you an example? Oh, go ahead. Maybe tell me, tell me if this is right. So so let's say that we all contract for some defense agency that's going to protect us from invasion, and then that defense agency uh, starts to do you know get all these little black helicopters and starts to amass these troops and then just takes us over. Is, is something like that? No, I was thinking more simplistic, much more simplistic. Right. For instance, the lady down the street, she doesn't have family. She lives by herself. She's raped and murdered. It didn't really affect me. I'm not going to go figure out what happened and why it happened. I'm just glad we're fine, and I'm going to go about with my existence. That would well, be a okay, but would you look? Would you really? Uh, would you really not care if some rapist and murderer was around in your neighborhood? Well, I would care intensely, um, but I right. care a lot about those things. Just like if you're in front of a prenatal murder mill. I'm going to get feisty because I believe that from the moment of creation, everyone has the right to life, liberty, life and liberty. They have self-ownership to an extent. Obviously, my children um, live in a benevolent dictatorship, but I do not have authority over their life uh, and health. Um, So I do get very upset about that sort of thing. But I see other people that are ambivalent. They're like, well, it doesn't really affect me. I don't really care. I'm going to go about Okay, okay, but let, okay, so let's accept that that's a problem. I would argue that there's ways around that, but let's accept that, that you're absolutely right, that that's a significant problem in a free society. How is that solved in a statist society? Right, because the statism has to make the case that it's worth violating the universal moral rule of non-aggression for a better end. That's the very least that it has to do, mm-hmm. right? So how mm-hmm. does that get solved in a statist society? It does not get solved in a statist for, society. For, for and I think, I think I like that response because instead of being forced into a position where you have to prove anarchy works, you turn the argument by demonstrating that anarchy is the only moral solution. It doesn't proactively mold the citizenry into a moral people. Whereas with statism, there's an assumption, a superstition that their authority is legitimate and therefore whatever they do is moral and justifiably molding of the people. So the problem isn't solved in a statist society, and the problem isn't solved in an anarchy society. It would take some other solution, um, or actually... 
Well, sorry, sorry. No, uh, let me just anarchy. jump in for a sec because, because look, it, it's not neutral, right? So with the state, we know we're going to get war. We know we're going to get unjust imprisonment. We know we're going to get a monopoly of fiat currency. We know we're going to get indoctrination of kids because all governments around the world do all of those things and have almost since the beginning of time and will until almost the end of time. So there's a huge negative, uh, a huge series of negatives associated. I mean, war and, and, and imprisonment of, of hundreds of millions of people around the world for non-crimes. Uh, we know we're going to get all of that with the state. And so there better be a huge amount of solutions that the state is achieving that anarchy can't achieve in order to even come close to justifying the not even risks but known disasters of statism. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, you've kind of, um, just by the single act, and I would strongly encourage our listeners to do the same thing when people present, just like I did, the problem with prenatal murder mills, uh, you know, throwing it back on the person saying, okay, explain to me how a status society is solving that problem and getting rid of this presupposition that the um, anarchy is responsible for a proactively solving or molding society and statism is going to legitimately or morally mold society. Both arguments are false. It's it's the moral high ground of anarchy is the only moral solution. And each one of us is responsible to God for the manner in which we operate and function. Well, and there's – look, there's credible estimates uh, that – it's called democide. It's murder by the state. That a quarter of a billion people or more were murdered by governments. This is not including war. This is not including war or incarceration. This is simply being murdered by your own government. A quarter of a billion, that's B, with a capital B, a quarter of a billion people were murdered by governments just in the 20th century alone. And so to me, any solution that says, well, we need the governments to build the roads, it's like, but you're paving them with the corpses of people. You're paving them with, with blood. I mean, a quarter of a billion people is a lot of people to be murdered. And so to me, the standard for statism has, in terms of what it's going to solve has to be pretty damn high if you're willing to step over all of those bodies and, and claim that it's an ideal. Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point, Stefan. I hadn't really thought – I hadn't cou couched it in those terms. That, that is interesting, and, and you know, that's really the first time I've actually thought about it uh, and the trade-off that you've uh, so very, very eloquently put in front of us. It, it, it's a difficult trade, and you know, I think that that's one of the things that we need to put out in front of people, that this is the cost of the system that you think is so much ad more admirable than individual liberty. Now, let me – do you mind if I switch gears here a little bit, Jerry? Um, no, but we do we do have a caller in the queue too, dear. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'll I'll go fast. Let me ask you this, Stefan. As you look at our current political situation, and as you're talking and teaching and and uh, spreading this truth of anarchy, um, to what extent do you urge people to check out of the system? Because I noticed that you have spoken at events where Ron Paul is a guest. Ron Paul obviously believes in government. He's running for president. People need to subscribe to government in order to elect Ron Paul. You know, tell me to what extent you uh, encourage or are okay with legitimizing people's engagement with government systems. I would characterize Ron Paul not so much as a guest, but as a heckler of mine. No, I'm kidding. I, I don't think he's actually been. I don't think he's actually heard me speak. He probably hasn't. But um, 
I, I, I mean, it's a tough call. I, I, you can't tell other people what to do in terms of whatever works for them as far as activism goes. I mean, Larkin Rose, as you may know, went to jail for tax evasion. I don't make that choice. I make the choice to pay my taxes. I make my choice to legally minimize my taxes with a good accountant, but I make my choice to pay because I want to be free to concentrate on my particular skill set, which has, I think, to do with enjoyable and hopefully not too unhumorous communications about philosophically challenging ideas. <laughs> I think that people should try and stay in the system as much as possible. I don't think that people should become prison guards. I think that's, you know, vice cops or something. I think that's going to corrupt people beyond the point of return. But I think to stay in the system, you know, you need to be in a hospital if you're a doctor. And that means making some compromises with a hospital system you may not agree with. But otherwise, it's really tough to get to the patients. And uh, I think that we need to do this kind of triage. If we have the capacity to reason with people, to bring the truth to people, I think that is a great power. I think with that power comes a responsibility and almost an obligation, not a contractual obligation. But it's like if you're a doctor and some some guy's choking to death and you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver in a restaurant, you don't sit there and say, listen, can you bring my parfait because that person is really bothering me. And if you could take that person outside to expire on the sidewalk, I would be able to enjoy my dessert. Oh, that much better. No, I mean, I think if you know how to help somebody who's choking, you go and help someone who's choking. But in order to do that, I think you need to be a little bit in the system. I'm not saying necessarily political power. I think that's not a, a healthy way to go. But I think it's perfectly fine to stay within the system, even to take some of the benefits of the system in order to be able to effectively communicate to people about freedom. Uh, but again, people who choose a different path, I mean, I, I certainly don't have a monopoly on the answers. This is just my argument and preferred way of doing it. That's, that, that's real interesting. I, I was going to ask you a question along those lines because I wanted to find out if you thought it was appropriate uh, or even rational to support any political entity or a political candidate, say Ron Paul or even you, Stefan, if if for <laughs> some reason you decided to run for elective office. I'm not going to run for elective office, though I appreciate the thought. No, I uh, look, I, I, I appreciate the passion and dedication that people bring to to the approach of changing the world through politics. I appreciate that Ron Paul and others like him have done an enormous amount to educate people about political and economic aspects of liberty. Mm -hmm. I in no way, shape, or form believe that it is through politics that we are going to achieve freedom. I do, do not believe that an individual can go in and reform the state. And there's an easy test for this. There's an easy test for this, which is if we believe that we can go into a criminal organization and turn it to virtue, then we need to prove that theory with our local drug gang, with our local mafia. We go and infiltrate them and turn them into a charity that helps kittens. But everybody knows that this is not going to be what's happened, that if you join the mafia and rise in its ranks, you are not going to be able to reform it. And so I don't believe that you can reform criminal organizations. I think that we fundamentally need to outgrow them. Uh, and we need to outgrow them by uh, building slave-on-slave -slave solidarity rather than attacking each other, which is the foundation of the power of the state. Uh, and I think that we need to really focus on growing a generation of, of kids who are unafraid of authority, which is a change in our parenting. The state is something we outgrow. It can't be outvoted. Because the government itself is a, is a violent entity. And even if you were to say, look, I want to join the mafia to cut its murders or, or kneecappings in half, uh, I just, you know, we all know that that wouldn't work. So why would it work with the greatest criminal gang of all? If it's not going to work in a small situation, it's not going to work in a big situation. If we can't lift five pounds, we ain't going to be able to lift 500.
I agree. I, I agree. Um, we're going to have to cut away to a break here, and I do have three callers in the queue, and I'm going to tell you. Let's have them all talk at once. It's anarchy. Yeah, that, that, that might work, but <laughs> we wouldn't get anything accomplished. Um, you guys that are hanging out there, I'm going to try to get to every one of you when we come back from this break, but you're going to have to make it very sweet, short, and concise to give Stefan an opportunity to respond. So while you're thinking about that, we're going to cut away to this break, sell some stuff because capitalism still is a pretty good idea. We'll be right back. Okay, you guys in the queue are kind of lucky because you got reduced by 33% in number. So we're going to go to Mike in Chicago. Make it short, Mike. What you got for us today? Um, yeah, well, I've often thought uh, about uh, the, the, uh, uh, the way to do it is not to participate uh, the problem with that is there's a lot of immigrants and um, multicultural people that are here. Uh, everyone seems to think the middle class has got the, the upper hand, but the middle the middle class just got the rug uh, pulled from underneath them. They're living in their foreclosed houses. They don't have jobs. Their unemployment is running out. Their wages are decreasing. Their gas, their inflation is eating them alive. And how are we supposed to get together and say, all right, we're not going to buy Coca-Cola. I'm not picking on Coke here. I'm trying to make an example. Okay, we're not going to buy Coca-Cola no more. Okay, all right, well, then maybe we're going to see a change, you know. But the fact of the matter is Obama's going to get in there again because people are out here on the street and other places, and they don't, they're just trying to uh, get Jump to the question. And, and Jump to gonna... the question, Mike. Go ahead. Are you done, Mike? No, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, and, uh, well, that, re- that, were, that really wasn't a question. So we're going to. Let me just comment uh, just very, very briefly on what he's saying, though, which is that to me, a status solution is like taking um, heroin for a toothache, right? So it will cover up the problem, but unfortunately, the rot just gets worse. So we have a status solution called the welfare state or social security or Medicare or Medicaid. And it certainly is true that if you borrow, which is what the government does, it has to in order to bribe people because if it just transfers money, then it creates as many losers as winners and the system doesn't work. So it has to go into debt in order to bribe people. And so you get these temporary solutions which cover up fundamental core social problems. And then when the government runs out of money, the people who've grown up and who've in a sense been forced to be dependent upon the government, like people who are going to retire, who've had 13 or 14% of their money stolen from them throughout their lives and thus have been unable to save for their own retirement. When the government runs out of money, it's like when the when the cocaine or the, the, the heroin wears off from the toothache, you're just that much worse off. And that, that's the situation. It's all been masked up to now, but the situation is really unraveling right now, uh, as has been predicted, of course, by freedom lovers for the last uh, few centuries. Mm-hmm. Like the reason I'm calling in, I'm, look, I'm trying to present solutions. This is not easy for me. It's not easy for your guests. Okay. Hey, Mike, thank you for calling. We are running out of time. we got to go to Eddie. Eddie in Cleveland. Hey, welcome to Freedom Frenzy. You got about a minute and a half. Hello. Can, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Quick, quick, okay, quick. Okay, very quickly. Number one, anarchy would work if everyone was cool. Number two, just because a country has nuclear weapons, that doesn't mean that it cannot be conquered or invaded. Goodbye. All right. Yes. So the argument is, uh, I think when he means cool, he means sort of good. So the idea is that we can only achieve a free society if everybody is virtuous. I would actually argue the complete opposite, that we need a free society because people aren't virtuous. So people often ask me, okay, so what would happen in a free society with psycho killers and murderers and so on? It's like, well, the first thing we would do is not give them an army, not give them a police force, not give them a prison system. 
the fact that people are evil is why we can't have a state. Because if you're an evil guy and there's a state, where is it that you most want to go? It's to the summit of political power because you want to be a really good criminal, not a stupid street corner criminal. The state, the very power that the state holds is like a gravity well for the most evil people in society to come up uh, and to gain political power through lying and bribery and cheating and then use political power to dominate and enslave all the good people in society. Or enrich themselves. If people were yeah, if people were 100% good, we wouldn't need a state. If people are mostly ba bad, we can't have a state. It's certainly not a democratic one because it's vote evil people in. If there's evil in the world, you cannot have a government. We accept the reality of evil. Therefore, we reject the, le the legitimacy of the state. That, that was a wonderful answer. That's an awesome argument. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really fun, informative freedom frenzy. Thank you. Yes, I've, I've enjoyed uh, your presence on the program today, Stefan, and I'm hoping that sometime in the near future we can have you back so that we can elaborate on some of the topics that we've touched on today. Folks, I hope you enjoyed what we did today. I hope you enjoyed having uh, Stefan Molyneux with us to, on the program. I sure wish that we'd have got a lot more calls a little bit earlier, but say, you know, say la vie. We'll be back next Sunday to see you. Goodbye. Have a wonderful week. 